Hello and welcome to the COVID-19 and hematologic malignancies expert insight webcast. Uh, we're now actually in our sixth episode, which we've extended to a total of seven episodes. Uh, but today is the sixth episode. My name is Dr. Joseph McHale. I'm a hematologist. I'm a professor at the Translational Genomics Research Institute here in sunny Phoenix, Arizona, and I am the chief medical officer of the International Myeloma Foundation. We're very thankful to be able to bring this ongoing series in the midst of this pandemic to you, where we've had the privilege of interviewing experts in hematology, in infectious diseases, uh, emergency room physicians, patients, patient advocates, trying to understand better how the COVID crisis has affected our hematologic malignancy practice. Uh, I'm particularly uh, thankful to be able to have a very good friend with me on our show today, and we're delighted to have Jessica Altman uh, with us. She is uh, the director of the Leukemia Program uh, at, at Northwestern University in Chicago, and in a few moments, I'll uh, dive into some questions for her. Uh, for those of you who've been following the series, we're thankful that you're with us, and uh, we're proud to say that this has been a CME-certified CME series, so if you want to obtain credit for this, you can. Uh, there'll be some questions uh, for you as well as an evaluation, and you can follow directions on your screen to obtain that specific credit. Uh, so as I mentioned, as part of this sixth series, and we'll be looking forward to our seventh series uh, before too long, but in this sixth series, we wanted to focus in on myeloid diseases. We spent some time talking about uh, lymphoma and other lymphoid diseases. We spent some time talking about myeloma, but today uh, we're delighted to have Dr. Altman join us uh, to talk a little bit today about myeloid diseases. So Jessica, it's always good to see your face, and I'm glad you could join us today. Thank you so much. I feel the same way seeing you. Um, thank you, Joe, for including me. It's my absolute pleasure to be here and talk about the impact of COVID-19 on myeloid malignancies. Yeah, so let's let's dive right in there. As I say, it's a it's a really it's a delight to have you with us. Uh, so maybe to kick things off, let's think a little bit together about what has your experience been in Chicago? As you, as you may know, we've been looking at if you will, the hotspot areas, although it's hard to define them. We spent time in New York and Seattle and, and San Francisco and now uh, focusing in Chicago. Have you seen a lot of your patients develop COVID? Is there a reason why you have or have not seen that? Uh, what has been your perspective on the sort of called epidemiology of, of COVID within your myeloid practice? So thank you, Joe. While there certainly have been plenty of cases of COVID-19 in the Chicagoland area, um, we've been pretty fortunate that we've seen relatively limited numbers of cases directly affecting our patients with myeloid um, hematologic malignancies and also patients with acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Those are the patients that I um, take care of in my practice. And um, I, I think part of that is because our, our patients tend to be so good at practicing social distancing, it's been ingrained in them um, to be mindful of kind of their body positioning and making sure that they're um, washing their hands and wearing masks, um, really related to their underlying bone marrow condition. Um, and I think as I may have mentioned previously, our patients with acute leukemia particularly have been practicing um, social distancing before it was cool to do so. 
And this is just kind of the nature of who they are. In fact, I think the rest of the world has gotten a sense of what um, their social habits are, are like and have been for, for this time. Well, that's, that's very helpful. And, you know, we never want to sort of understate or overstate the problem. You know, we don't, we don't want to make it sound like our patients are not at risk. But, you know, I agree. This has been a common thread that you've shared with me, as has Nina and John, and I've seen in my own practice. I mean, we're so meticulous to teach our patients around hand washing and appropriate distancing and when to wear a mask that I, I think that has been a part of it. I do think our patients have some susceptibility by their immune uh, effect of their disease, although it seems that it may not be the highest of the unfortunate risk factors we've seen like age and obesity. I, I agree with you. I, I think for certain, they if they are exposed, their risk of... Uh, a major consequence to the virus is high, and that's the data that we've seen come out of China, especially those who are actively receiving treatment. But fortunately, they have, my patients have done, I think, a really great job of practicing distancing and trying to minimize their exposure risk. And, and I suspect some of that is what you've done as a clinic. So when we think of the kind of systemic changes that we've all gone through, I mean, even being able to although I'd much rather be sitting with you live, you know, doing these things virtually. I suspect you've been doing more virtual consults and visits and so on. So what have you done as an institution to try and reduce that risk uh, in the way you conduct the practice? Yeah, thanks for asking. We have converted, when appropriate, our visits to telemedicine and we have utilized video conferencing for our telemedicine visits whenever feasible. Um, in addition, we, um, I, or maybe I should say that really also allows us to limit the number of patients who are on site in the cancer center to those who actively need to be seen. So there are fewer people um, just generating generally in the practice. Um, and so fewer touch points for, for all of those patients. Um, and I, I think it's important though to underscore that it's not that our patients aren't being seen, they're both being seen virtually. And importantly, before we make the decision to convert a patient to a virtual encounter as opposed to an in-person encounter, um, one of my nurses calls that patient beforehand, ensures that there aren't any active symptoms and has also reviewed the appropriateness with me or one of my nurse practitioners to ensure that the patient can safely be converted to a virtual visit. You know, it's, it's almost paradoxical. We've seen this come up a few times in the series, and I know even in my own practice, sometimes it's almost allowed us to have more communication with our patients. There seems to be, you know, as, as, as uh, sometimes I like to say, uh, I'm not so much into social distancing as much as physical distancing and social connectedness. Right. Um, and I think sometimes it's allowed us to communicate with our patients a little bit more. I mean, it's not ideal still. I think uh, uh, in many respects, we do want to see people face to face. But I think 
that enhanced communication has been helpful. Have they made changes to you as a physician in terms of your sphere of like some institutions have, you know, kept certain patients always, certain physicians always on inpatient versus outpatient, or they've, they've sort of changed the traffic of the hospital as it were. So you're not, you know, walking past the ICU and the bone marrow transplant unit as you go to outpatient clinic. Have there any been logistical changes like that? So thank you. We've been encouraged to when we are not actively seeing patients or we're not rounding on the inpatient units to be at home and to be able to work from home when feasible, especially those of us who are taking care of folks with hematologic malignancies. Um, and we also, if we are attending on an inpatient hemolignancy service, we are trying to um, limit the visits um, into like our intensive care units. Um, but in the same respect, certainly if there's a patient who has a hemolignancy who's in the intensive care unit, they need to be seen by an appropriate provider. Um, I think what allows us to, to do all of this without very much day-to-day -day thought is our patients in our hospital are cohorted. So our patients with, with COVID-19 are um, in COVID units and they're, whether they're on the, the floor, regular floor with COVID-19 or they're in COVID specific ICUs. And so if there is a hemolignancy patient who needs to be in the ICU, they are not, in, they don't have COVID-19, they are not in a COVID-19 ICU. And so we will freely go and see, see mm -hmm. that patient as appropriate. Understood. Yeah, and, I, and I'm seeing that as a trend for sure, that, that centers where, of course, there are enough of those cases where they really have a dedicated unit for them. Let's talk okay. a little bit about now about your treatment explicitly for your myeloid diseases. I mean, ha have things changed? Have you, have you tried to go to oral treatments or, or have you changed your approach to intensive therapies or um, have you stopped putting people on clinical trial? I mean, what has been the sort of philosophy or approach? Because I think from what I've seen, at least, you know, in my practice and so many others, what we thought was maybe going to be a few week issue has now become several months. And so we're, we're, we're a good way into it now, you know, in the middle of June. And, and I wondered what your thoughts were about how you're approaching that. And those are lots of great questions all in one. And so if I don't answer one of them, obviously feel free to ask again. I, I think you're right. When we first started off in this pandemic, we wondered if this was going to be short-lived. And so a lot of a lot of practitioners considered, well, can I get, can I think about something like using less intensive chemotherapy first, and then if the patient doesn't respond, or if there's still some amount of disease or whatever situation, then think about intensive therapy. And um, that's clearly hasn't been the situation. This pandemic has continued, and we anticipate that it will continue for many more months until there are effective vaccines in place. So we've taken the approach, and I know many other um, academic leukemia centers have taken the same approach of individuals who have a curable acute leukemia are treated with the most appropriate therapy um, based on the patient's other comorbidities. Um, and so we haven't adjusted therapy for those who have curable, a curable malignancy. 
as you know, in every instance, in every medical condition, there's a lot of gray um, and there's a lot of patient variability and things are not always cut and dry. And um, for, for those instances and really for every patient encounter, we have a conversation about what the ramifications of each therapy are, both independent and in the context of COVID-19. So we, when we think about whether we're gonna offer someone intensive induction chemotherapy or a less intensive approach like a hypomethylating agent and venetoclax, we think about both patient characteristics, disease characteristics, and have a shared decision-making process with the patients and understanding their goals. And we add additional relevance, additional conversation surrounding the pandemic. When we have that's, that's fantastic. So that kind of individualized approach, instead of trying to say, you know, we're, we're using tier two treatments for this and that disease. Uh, and, and I and, wouldn't expect any less of you, of course, because I think three people. I think we've had the luxury at Northwestern to be able to do that because, as I mentioned before, our patients are really cohorted nicely, which means that the staff is cohorted as well, and the risk of staff-to-patient transmission of the virus decreases. And because of that, I, I don't know that it's safer for a patient to receive a hypomethylating agent and venetoclax, or is it um, and be out of the hospital versus receiving something like seven plus three intensive induction chemotherapy. Um, when, when the original considerations of how to treat patients um, during the COVID era were considered, a lot of, I think a lot of the rationale decision-making of moving away from something like seven plus three and thinking about azacitidine and venetoclax or decitabine and venetoclax or lotus and venetoclax essentially um, was in efforts to try to free up hospital beds and we've been very lucky in chicago um, and particularly at my center that we haven't been constrained for oncology and hematology beds. And so if the right thing is to treat someone with intensive induction chemotherapy and have a prolonged hospital course, at this moment, we've been able to do that. That's, that's beautifully stated and I think very important. So what I'm hearing from you is obviously you wanna to tailor to each patient the best therapy possible. And even if that involves a hospitalization, right. you've been able to continue to do that, but you've also not forgotten the potential additional risks of uh, contracting COVID and what it may have. I mean, it, it, it sounds like, thankfully, you've not had very many of those patients uh, COVID positive, but if you were, and I know it's a bit hypothetical, but if there were a patient in tomorrow who was indeed COVID positive, um, would that tailor how you would treat them as well? So this used to I shouldn't say used to. This still keeps me up at night, this fear of what am I going to do in this situation. And I'm so relieved that I haven't had to deal with this yet. 
But what goes through my mind when I think about this is, again, I think about the um, biology of the disease and what therapeutic maneuvers I have other than a standard intensive induction chemotherapy or even a hypomethylating agent and venetoclax. So um, when we have a patient who has COVID-19, there are I think there are multiple different possibilities with their COVID-19. Is it someone who is asymptomatic with COVID-19 or is it someone who's symptomatic with COVID-19? And just like with any other infectious process, if someone has a symptomatic active infection, we try to control that before we start intensive induction chemotherapy when, whenever feasible. There are, and not all AML is the same. Some forms of AML or ALL, but well, we're talking about AML. Some forms of AML are very proliferative and without immediate treatment or immediate supportive care, the patient is going to die from a complication of their leukemia. And some forms of AML are not as nearly as aggressive. And so there's lots of variation to think about, but my kind of sweeping generalizations are that I would do whatever we can to ensure that the COVID-19 is controlled. And then likely, if appropriate, based on the biology of the disease, think about a less intensive approach, either a venetoclax-based approach or potentially a combination of a hypomethylating agent and a targeted therapy if the patient's disease expresses a FLT3 or an IDH mutation. Um, that's, that's extremely insightful and very helpful. And it's, it's good that you have that potential. I mean, obviously in some patients, you may still want to fully treat them as right. you say they're asymptomatic, but if someone was, uh, and, and, and I ask you in particular, because you as myeloid experts you are so familiar with this because very tragically so often patients present with their myeloid disease with a, an infection. Uh, one more disease specific question before we get close to wrapping up, Jessica, was, was your approach to transplant. You had mentioned at the start that obviously if someone had a potentially curable um, you know, disease, you, you want to follow down that path. Has your transplant center shrunk down and come back up? Is it still down? How have things gone on the transplant angle? So I, I'd like to commend our transplant center that for patients whose diseases have required stem cell transplant, that a transplant has been an appropriate or the appropriate next step for the treatment of their disease, that um, those transplants have continued at our center. Um, I, I believe that there has been more thought into delaying transplant um, for those who are undergoing autologous stem cell transplants and then kind of um, tandem transplants, those types of questions. I'm not as intimately involved with those decisions because I don't take care for those patients. But I will say, and I think other, um, other leaders that you've spoken to as well have mentioned this, that we're very careful about testing our patients at various time points surrounding transplant. We also are testing our patients um, for COVID-19 before induction therapy, and I think even more importantly, before consolidation therapy, because that's something if their disease is in remission and they were COVID positive, I could delay their consolidation if necessary or switch to a less intensive approach if 
their um, COVID-19 is persisting. Nice. So, so strategic testing when it may influence yeah. either they're moving to a COVID unit or you affecting a change in the planned therapy, like delaying it or uh, intensifying. Wonderful. Well, this is great. This is very insightful for me and very helpful for me. And it sounds like you've had a very strategic approach throughout, very patient-centered, uh, which I think is wonderful as I think we have to remember throughout this, our patients are, are afraid, are concerned. You know, we had an excellent conversation with Yelak Biru, who is a, a patient himself and a patient advocate and really reminded us of the importance of that communication with the healthcare team at all times. Uh, you know, they're watching the news like we are and, and are afraid. And uh, I really appreciate your approach to this. A any final thoughts before we uh, wrap up? Uh, Jessica, any other ideas that have not uh, been covered today together? I think one other question that you had asked that I didn't touch on was the role of clinical trials. Um, and I want to stress that clinical trials are still up and running and when that is the appropriate um, um, option for a patient's disease at that time course, um, clinical trials are still available. Certainly consideration for um, ensuring that there are appropriate resources at sites and also the utilization of remote monitoring of clinical trials has really assisted um, with all of this. And those, there's lots of consideration that goes on with determining um, if a clinical trial is appropriate, just like at any time point in a patient's care, um, what the appropriate uh, treatment decision is. And I, I really appreciate you saying that because I, I think it was so important. There was a sense at one point that we might just shut everything down and just go, but you know, clinical trials save lives and patients and they advance the science that we need. I almost feel it's a bit like this, what we're doing right now. You know, some, some centers have almost abandoned education, but you know, education isn't a perk. It's, it's mandatory. We need to learn. I'm amazed at how many FDA approvals there have been in the last six to eight weeks and um, people need to know about them and be able to bring the best treatment for their patient. Well, thank you again. It's just, it's thank always you. a pleasure to see you no matter what context, but particularly when we yeah. can you know, learn more about how you approach your practice and how you work as a team and your institution is really remarkable to me how you do that. Uh, Jessica, and I think you're a role model to so many. I, I appreciate that personally. Yeah. Uh, and I hope our audience has enjoyed uh, this discussion today and it'll help you as you care for your patients. Uh, and then of course, we're looking forward to our final uh, series, final part of the seven part series uh, next week when I uh, meet with uh, Dr. Satlin, who we met briefly earlier on, Michael Satlin. He's an infectious disease specialist uh, at Cornell in New York City, who specifically focuses uh, his work uh, within uh, malignancy patients. So it'll be very interesting to see uh, what he uh, shares with us next week. A particular thanks again to iMedics for facilitating this program and a reminder that if you wish to receive CME credit, just follow the instructions on the screen and you'll be able to do so. Please provide us questions if you wish. We seek to answer them in subsequent series or, or online for you uh, as we all navigate this pandemic together. So again, thank you for joining us today and we trust it's been helpful to you. Thank you.